Hello and welcome to Pocket Salon. I'm Juliette Russell. And I'm Helen Bagnall and this is the first of three podcasts looking ahead to the 2014 Transmission Prize set up by Juliet and I in a weak moment <laughs> and awarded by Salon London for the communication of big ideas. This year's prize will go to one of eight shortlisted nominees and today we'll be introducing you to three of them. Olivia Lang, whose book Trip to Echo Spring explores the American writers and their relationship with alcohol. There's something very evocative about the trip to Echo Spring. He just means he's going to get a bottle of Kentucky bourbon. But at the same time, what else does he mean? And that was the question I wanted to explore in terms of writers and alcohol. Why do so many of our writers drink? And we'll be hearing from Professor David Nutt, who lost his job as a government's drug czar after his controversial findings about the damage that alcohol caused. And we'll be speaking to Lloyd Bradley, whose book Sounds Like London charts 100 years of black music in our capital city. The sons and daughters of the Caribbean are now totally integrated into English and London life, London and English life. And the idea that the music has become so much a part of what we're doing that now we are creating genuine black pop music. But first, Olivia Lang. Her book, Trip to Echo Spring, Why Writers Drink, was described by Hilary Mantel as frightening but perversely inspiring. Lang can evoke a state of mind as gracefully as she evokes a landscape, said Mantel, and she won the Booker Prize twice, so she knows what she's talking about. Lang herself says the book's title was drawn from Tennessee Williams' play, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and when I met Olivia last summer, she explained why she'd chosen the phrase. It's what the alcoholic brick describes his trips to the liquor cabinet. And I felt like that was a real... um, There's something very evocative about the trip to Echo Spring. He just means he's going to get a bottle of Kentucky bourbon. But at the same time, what else does he mean? And that was the question I wanted to explore in terms of writers and alcohol. Why do so many of our writers drink? Because the trip to Echo Spring is actually part of a much larger trip around America to explore exactly why writers drink. Yes, I was searching for six writers in particular. So I was talking about Tennessee Williams, John Cheever, John Berryman, Fitzgerald, Hemingway and Raymond Carver. And to do that, I took a journey across America. I I like to write with a travel element. And I took a journey from New York to New Orleans to Key West, Port Angeles, which is a vast amount of (laughs) exhausting amount of travelling. And on my way, I wanted to try and explore really what made those writers drink and what effect alcohol had had on their work. What effect had alcohol had on their work? In some ways it had been a stimulant, especially in the early years. It had been intoxicating, it had been fun, and then things really soured. And what really shocked me, you know, we have these kind of glamorous ideas of how writers drink and they knock back their cocktails and it's all very fun. And really unpacking these stories demonstrated how incredibly painful alcohol had been on their lives and how detrimental to their creativity which I think is not the myth that we tend to tell ourselves so lots of them ended up unable to write at all there were lots of suicides they were really quite sad stories and I really didn't want to end like that so I also included people who'd managed to recover and who'd had these kind of second lives these renaissances where they were able to write very wonderfully and that was John Cheever and Raymond Carver Mm -hmm. whose dry periods were really incredibly fertile why do you think this, the creativity of these writers went hand in hand with that alcoholic tendencies? What was the nature of this kind of codependent relationship? That's just the biggest question. And I think it's, it's very hard to um, make broad statements because I think it's different in every case. But at the same time, one of the things that's, that happened with that six, and I chose them because of the sort of patterns in their lives and the similarities, 
is that they all had kind of ruptured childhoods, quite quite damaged childhoods. And there was something in that, I think, that led to a kind of... And I really... I don't want to sort of say that this was the only thing going on, because creativity is obviously such a complex subject, but there's a kind of escapism in alcoholism, a desire not to be where you are. And I think there's something about that that also draws one towards fiction and I think it's really interesting that many of them as little boys were storytellers they were not very good in their classes but they tell these wonderful stories and there was something about that sort of urge to fantasy I think that's very interesting. In terms of the reader's experience is there an argument that says that their pain made our reading experience better? I wonder I wonder if it did I mean I think there's a kind of integrity and authenticity that comes across especially with somebody like Raymond Carver those sort of gritty books and then later on the the sort of gratefulness and the joy in his in his late poetry mm-hmm. it comes from somewhere very authentic I mean he's not always writing about his own life sometimes he is but he's not always but I think it does come from that place and that's actually quite a troubling thought as a reader isn't it there is a sense that in enjoying their work you are almost (laughs) exploiting their experiences and I think there's some truth in that but then at the same time I end with this quote from Cheever which I really love where he talks about you know his his life was terrible in many ways he did some dreadful things he Mm. fell out with his family in lots of bad ways he had a heart attack lots of bad things came out of his alcohol but at the same time he writes about writing and he says it is the thing that makes sense of my life so I think Mm-hmm. we're not exploiting them <laughs> by enjoying that 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 was their gift that was their talent that was what they were giving and I think it's very important for us to be able to take pleasure in it but I certainly don't read any of those books in the same way now Olivia Lang speaking to me last year so did you and Olivia go to the pub afterwards or did that put you off alcohol for months well if Olivia's book didn't David certainly did <laughs> yeah that's true isn't it <laughs> I loved Olivia's book though it was a really beautiful portrayal and I felt it really sort of hotline me to several writers. I was already into Raymond Carver, but John Cheever I didn't really know much about. So it's a really beautiful book. I know, those big American writers that you were hoping you could kind of get through your life without actually reading. And suddenly <laughs> her approach, which is almost psychobiography of writers, means that you absolutely have to read them. It's a brilliant piece of work. Yeah, and I think that psychobiography angle is really interesting because you're putting yourself... Basically, Oliver's book takes you on a journey through some of the places where the author's lived and worked. And putting yourself in that situation and seeing it through the prism of her life, I thought was a really fascinating device of the book. Yeah, definitely worked for us. Well, alcohol has played its part in the career of our next Transmission Prize nominee too. Professor David Nutt, whose view that drinking and smoking cause more damage than LSD, ecstasy and cannabis, cost him his job as the government's top drugs advisor. His analysis of the damage caused by alcohol led him to criticise the then Labour government over the way it classified illegal drugs. Less than impressed, the government sacked him. Here at Salon, though, we thought that he was on to something, so we invited him to speak as part of our series of Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Going back to almost the same time as we saw the rise in alcohol-related liver deaths, we see there's been a 20-fold increase in cannabis use over the last 40 years. Now, the, the five-fold increase in liver deaths was paralleled by about a two-fold increase in drinking. There's a very non-linear relationship. Alcohol has a parabolic relationship. The more you consume, the much more harm you get. You might think with a 20-fold increase in the number of people using cannabis, there might be some measure of harms which you could find. Now, I showed you the deaths are non-negligible, and the government was desperate to reclassify cannabis from C to D under Jackie Smith and then Alan Johnson. And they clung on to this idea that cannabis causes schizophrenia. And they clung on to it, even though we used the best database we have. This is the MRC 
general practice database in the UK, it looks at about a third of the population through general practice. And we showed that there was no relationship. A 20-fold increase in cannabis use had no impact whatsoever on the incidence or prevalence of psychosis or schizophrenia. None whatsoever. And the same is true in all Western countries where there's been a, this massive increase in cannabis use. There is no relationship between cannabis use and having schizophrenia. And in fact, if you take the best estimate from the Swedish conscript study, you can predict that if you've got to start 5,000 young men and 7,000 young women from ever smoking cannabis to start one case of schizophrenia. So, so this is not a, an important public health problem. And it's certainly not a problem you can address by criminalising a million young people. But that's what we did. That's what this government, the last government did. It decided it wanted to make a statement about cannabis, even though it had no health harms of any value to justify it. But it was a smokescreen. It was a moral decision that they used some very, very inadequate data to justify. And over the years, we've seen these kind of irrational approaches to drugs repeat themselves. The cycles of criticism of drugs and banning of drugs uh, has well, existed really for the last several hundred years. And while I was working with the ACMD, I decided to set up a scheme where we could have a much more systematic way of appraising drug harm. And we, from first principles, we determined that there were actually 16 ways in which a drug can harm you. There are nine ways in which it can harm the person and seven ways it can harm others. And we, we applied these to 20 drugs. And we used a technique I haven't got time to go into called multi-criteria decision analysis, which is the best way of comparing different sorts of harms. And we came up with this result, which is quite a well-known graph now. And this graph shows the ranking of harms and a relative contribution of different drugs in terms of their harms. The blue is the harm to the user, and the red is the harm to society. And I have to say, I was surprised alcohol came out as the most harmful drug in the UK. Largely because this huge red bar here is the harm to society. And these are the harms from, from health harms, traffic accidents, so much violence, over half of all violence is related to drink, whether that's domestic violence or other interpersonal violence. In terms of the harm to the user, crack, crystal meth, heroin come out higher. But overall, this is the drug which is really causing the greatest harm to British society. This is the drug we should be focusing our health uh, improvement efforts on. You go to cannabis, it's considerably less harmful than, than alcohol. And if you go to drugs like ecstasy, there's very little harm. And what's also interesting, if you look at the harms of the different drugs and, and, and plot them against the classification of drugs under the misuse of drugs, that A, B, C, and unclassified, you see there is no relationship. So the Misuse of Drugs Act is supposedly a scientific instrument to determine the penalties for using drugs of different harms. And it bears no relationship whatsoever to the harms of drugs. So that was the incredible Professor David Nutt there. And I must admit, I had quite a lot of resistance to his book because I really didn't want to question my own relationship with booze. Yeah, and it's a very empathic book, I thought. I think you hear a lot in the media about the demonisation of users and drugs and how lethal they are. But actually, comparing something like alcohol and, and things that we take for granted, I thought was really enlightening. It was a very practical and actually a very empathic approach. It did make me question the, my relationship with alcohol. So we have one more Transmission Prize nominee to introduce you to in this edition. But first, I want to tell you a bit more about what happens on the 6th of February when we'll be announcing the winner of the 2014 Transmission Prize at Foyle's Bookshop here in London. We've got some great speakers lined up for the salon, including theoretical physicist David Tong, who will explain how pretty much everything works. There'll be some book-based, on-the-spot self-improvement from bibliotherapist Ella Bertou, 
and I'll be previewing the most important ideas you need to get your head around for the coming year. The salon kicks off at seven o'clock and we'd love you to be there. Tickets are on sale at the salon-london.com site and cost a mere £12. Our final nominee for this edition is Lloyd Bradley, whose book Sounds Like London takes you on a journey through black music in the capital. In Bradley's own words, it's about music, about people and about London people. For me, it was a beautiful social history using music and people as the backdrop. He said he spent most of his life living on two pages of the A to Z. And although Sounds Like London spans 100 years, as Lloyd told Salon's Jason Caffrey, he researched the whole project using an Easter card. I'd say using music as a metaphor for London's immigration history is probably the best way of describing it as if you look at how the music made inroads into various social situations, it seemed as if the people who made the music and the primary consumers of the music followed and integration became much easier. Can you give us an an example of something like that, Lloyd? African music was a great example of that. West African music that was coming here with the rush of African students in the late 50s, early 60s. They brought with them an excitement, a culture that people were interested in and it started spreading out of the university scenes where it first started, spilling into the Soho clubs where people came with it. Same thing with reggae. Uh, Reggae came from Jamaica as a music, spread into popular culture, which strings up a bit and turned into pop music. People liked it. It became easier for um, Caribbean immigrants. They had a common ground or or a talking point, if you like. In many cases, it seemed to pave the way for uh, social interaction. So it, it becomes a calling card for these new arrivals? Yes, the music becomes a calling card for new arrivals. It's a way of introducing themselves, getting their feet under the table. But then the situations in which people consume music outside their own home become a a physical meeting ground. When, you know, there was always uh, characters went to black jazz clubs, went to black swing clubs. I can remember, you know, white guys and girls going to reggae clubs. That creates, if you like, a a social interaction where people can just realise that neither side has got anything particular. They've got far more in common than they've got keeping them apart. Something else that really struck me is the story of Lover's Rock, which is where it became a a British style as opposed to primarily a Jamaican style. Well, this was something that was really important, that a popular culture, a broad-spread culture, became of London or of England rather than of the Caribbean because 90% of the people that were making it were born here, born in London or England, weren't going back anywhere, or at least not any time soon. And it was important that they could express themselves in a way that took in everything that went on around them. Yes, they were Jamaican or yes, they were West Indian, so therefore that was at the core. But at the same time, You listen to Radio 1 every day or Capital Radio and you couldn't escape pop music and rock music, the Beatles. So it was really important that people that weren't necessarily Caribbean but hadn't fully been accepted as British yet had some means of expressing themselves. And there is an importance in terms of 
creative independence and independence from mainstream and, in, and independence from typecasting as well about what the the mainstream view of what black music should be at that time independence from the mainstream music business view of what black music should be was absolutely vital every significant step forward was something that happened underground that happened managed to incubate itself amongst its own audience could develop uh, artistically before it set itself out in the main world and the mainstream audience i've found you know from personal experience and from research is far more robust than people imagine english people didn't actually want a 45 year old a and r man's idea of what reggae should be they actually wanted what reggae was and the idea that people interact with each other anyway so therefore appreciate what other cultures bring to the the host culture if you like it meant that the real thing always did much better than than what was uh, contrived uh, jazz funk shows that so completely when the jazz funk bands these young london kids you know many of them teenagers were making this kind of spiky london-based funk music that was totally true to them and their environment as soon as they got signed by big record deals they started to try and turn them into americans and the whole scene fell apart that was lloyd bradley talking to jason caffrey juliet you pretty much loved lloyd's book right i did i mean obviously music's my thing anyway but what i loved about it was it was the the fact that you felt that you got to know the characters really well the interviews were great very personal i loved the fact that it introduced me to loads of music that I hadn't heard before. And also just tracing that path of the massive impact of black music has culturally and musically in London and, you know, really globally, I thought was absolutely fantastic. And it was so rich in knowledge. I mean, I could read it all again and, and, you know, find out more. I really loved it. Yeah, I think read it again, but this time with a playlist. Yeah, I'd love to do that, yeah. (laughs) And I thought it was quite a love letter to London as well, which I really enjoyed. Oh, yeah. That's all from us for now. In our next edition, we'll be speaking to Barbara Sahakian about smart drugs. Sarah McCartney about the power of perfume and John McHugo about fitting a thousand years of Arab history into 300 pages. And don't forget to visit salon-london.com for details and tickets for the transmission prize giving on the 6th of February at Foils on Charing Cross Road. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.